Hello, everybody. Welcome to another special joint broadcast of Talk and Golf and State of the Game. I'm Rod Murray, and as the clock ticks down to the second men's major of the year, today we're going to look not forward to this week's US Open, but back to one of the most famous US Opens of all. This week's event will be played at the Olympic Club in San Francisco. It's the fourth time the US Open has come to this course, one of the West Coast's most prestigious venues. But each and every time, something unusual has happened. In 1998, Lee Jansen upset the late Payne Stewart on the sloping fairways of Olympic. Eleven years earlier, it was unheralded Scott Simpson who denied Tom Watson a second US Open title. And in 1966, Arnold Palmer orchestrated perhaps the greatest collapse in golf history, throwing away a seven-shot lead over the final nine holes to end in a playoff with Billy Casper, a playoff that he would eventually go on to lose. But none of those remarkable events comes even close to matching the upset that occurred at the first US Open to be played at Olympic back in 1955. That was the year that a virtually unknown club professional from Iowa, of all places, caught and beat the most imposing figure in golf at the time, the great Ben Hogan. When the subject of all-time greatest sporting upsets comes up, this event is always mentioned somewhere in the top five. It's one of golf and sports great stories. And just a couple of weeks ago, a book was released detailing the lead-up to and the playing of that monumental tournament. In a moment, the author of that book, Neil Sagabill, will be joining us. But before that, let me introduce my co-host for today's podcast, player, architect, commentator, and keen student of the history of the game, Mike Clayton. Clayton, is it fair to call the Flex story one of the top five sporting upsets of all time? Well, golf, certainly. Francis Wiemann, I suppose. Uh, Jack Fleck, you would have to put those two at the top of the list, I would have thought. Yep, I would, uh, I would um, agree. Yep. And Melbourne winning any football game is <laughs> one of the great sporting upsets. <laughs> For our US listeners, that won't make any sense. But for anybody in Australia, they'll know exactly what Clates is talking about. We're going to have a chat about the uh, the Wormet versus Fleck thing in just a moment. And we're going to have that chat with the author I mentioned there, Neil Sagabill. Neil joins us from the Olympic Club this week. He's the author of The Longest Shot, Jack Fleck, Ben Hogan, and Pro Golf's Greatest Upset at the 1955 US Open. It's an important distinction, that, Neil, isn't it? Because, of course, the Wormet story is an amazing one, but this is certainly professional golf's most well-known upset. Yeah, I had to fudge just a little bit in that subtitle, Rod. Uh, you know, at the time when Fleck beat Hogan, all the, the golf media, which wasn't as big as it is now, uh, they were trying to figure out how to you know, how to frame that in terms of history and, and what what they decided was it was the greatest thing that they'd seen happen or not, not all of seen we met but they remembered happening in the history of golf since we met took down Barton and Ray in 1913 at the U.S. Open so uh, I certainly uh, thought those two were kind of at the top of the list and then you have to consider what's happened since 55 and I, I really haven't seen anything or, or read about anything that, that quite matches it. So no, it, that's where the subtitle came from. It certainly stands up to the test of the time in that way, doesn't it? Neil, can you just try to put in context, perhaps for some of the younger listeners for whom Hogan maybe doesn't mean as much as uh, as those of us from another generation, what might be a similar sort of a story to unfold if perhaps this week? What would maybe make people sort of think, you know, just how big an upset this was at the time? You know, it's a great question about this week, but 
I'll tell you, the thing that reminds me that's happened, I'd say, in recent years, that reminds me the most of was when uh, Rocco Mediate tied Tiger, and they went to an 18-hole playoff. Uh, of course, it was a little different in that Tiger came the last hole in the 2008 U.S. Open at Torrey Pines, and he needed to sink a putt to tie while Mediate waited. It was just the opposite of 1955. Uh, Fleck came the last hole. He needed a birdie to tie Hogan, and he sunk that seven-footer on the last green to tie him. They, they had the 18-hole playoff. Coincidentally, this is kind of a little side note, the day that Rocco and, and Rocco Mediate Tiger Woods played their playoff four years ago, almost four years ago now, I was driving to the Olympic Club in San Francisco from Southern California to do research on this book. Wow. It's, uh, yeah. so it's kind of an interesting coincidence, but, um, you know, it, Jack was Jack Fleck was certainly an unheralded player. He wasn't. His resume really wasn't even as strong as Rocco Media. Mm. And I don't know. You you fellows probably recall just how big the story that was when Rocco and Tiger went head to head in that playoff. Well, one of the most exciting uh, golf tournaments of recent memory, isn't it, Clates? I remember getting up at two o'clock in the morning to watch the eighteen-hole playoff and still being on the edge of my seat as it went to a nineteenth hole. Yeah, that's true. It was a, it's a different time now, though. I mean, Jack Fleck was in part playing the tour and in part earning a living from the pro shop, but no one now on the tour now is earning a living from a pro shop. And, I mean, Rocco was a full-time, pretty respected, very competent tour player. Tool. And Jack Fleck, in a sense, was too. It was just that it was a different era, and he was, you know, there were fewer tournaments, and he, he was supplementing his playing income with, it, with earning it, you know, working at the club. Yeah, indeed. It's an amazing, the backstory to this is incredible, isn't it? And these things, I mean, the, the golf itself was exciting and the result was, was interesting and made lots of headlines, but it's the backstories that are intriguing, aren't they? And there are so many threads to this one. The relationship between Fleck and Hogan, which you outline in the book, they couldn't have been further apart, as Mike points out, in terms of tournament golf player standing. I mean, Hogan was, you know, the man and Fleck was, you know, the journeyman, wasn't he? But they had this weird sort of special relationship. Yes, that I, I found that fascinating myself. Uh, when I and one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was it was one of the greatest upsets, and I I thought how come there isn't a book? Mm. But the other reason was the more I got into the story, the more I realized there were all these fascinating details about it, uh, the circumstances surrounding it, and the connection between Fleck and Hogan. Fleck start out idolizing Hogan when he was just out of high school. He saw Hogan's rise as a player, and eventually Hogan, uh, he didn't really dethrone Byron Nelson. Byron Nelson retired, and then he and Sam Snead were the top players. And and Jack looked up to Hogan like a lot of players that era did. And then, of course, you've got the story about the clubs, which until I started talking to Jack Black about we, we first began our conversations about five years ago. I didn't know about the clubs. And that began an interesting chain of events that led all the way up into, until the Open, and then Jack winning, <laughs> and then being the first player to win with Hogan Clubs. It's just, you know, Hollywood could not make that up. <laughs> well, in fact, as it turns out, you know, the, uh, Hogan himself 
um, provided the bullet that probably eventually cost him the tournament. He he personally delivered the last two wedges for the set of clubs that he'd provided to Jack Fleck at the tournament venue that week before things got underway. He almost authored his own downfall. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think too, it's just it speaks to how different things were then that uh, a player would put new wedges into his bag a few days before the tournament began. Yeah. But Jack did that, and he practiced a lot. And he, there was something about getting those clubs. They, I mean, obviously they were great clubs. Hogan was, they were just getting getting started, and I think uh, perfecting, you know, how they were making those clubs to Hogan's standards. But I also think they were symbolic for Jack too. Mm-hmm. You know, he got clubs for his idol, and there was something very encouraging about that, and it gave him confidence that I think helped him out on the golf course. Mike, from a player's standpoint, and, and one of the great themes of the book, it's not spoken specifically, but it seems to me that, you know, and Fleck, I think, has probably felt this himself. He's, his win has been underrated. People have sort of suggested it was a fluke and all those sort of things, but an extraordinary uh, achievement that he made. As a player, when you climb into the, the arena with somebody you've idolised, which I'm sure must have happened to you at various times over your professional career. How hard is that to overcome, let alone the playing of the Olympic Golf Club uh, set up for a US Open? Well, you know, you're kind of in awe of the great players when you play with them, but I think the whole thing about this story was that, you know, Neil talks about it, was it the sixth green on, on the, during the second round where he kind of got in this, his part of felt different and he made the part and, you know, I think if you can get into that zone, and of course everyone tries to get there, but you can't get there, you get there unconsciously, really. That he just, you know, he found this magical place where the pressure left, and it didn't matter who he was playing, and he could handle the golf course, and he, and he you know, he won because of almost the mental state he was in, the serenity he felt, and you know, it seemed like, and correct me if I'm wrong, Neil, it was a calmness that he'd probably never felt before. And it, here it was, it, you know, it descended on him on the sixth green during the second round, and, you know, he shot 76 the first day, and which wasn't a bad score given how difficult the golf course was. No, you, you've, you've, I, you've definitely touched on, on one of the important keys to his victory. I think his mental state was in, was in a great place, and... Um, he, he he was playing well, and I think that's the thing that's always amazed me about this was he was, today they'd call it being in the zone. Uh, they, they didn't use that kind of language back then, but he, he got the got the putter going. He wasn't he wasn't a good putter. It was the weakest club in his bag. He, he really loved the golf course, and most of the players were afraid of it. It was, a, it was a, a, such a difficult setup at the rough. And I asked him, you know, were you nervous? Did you feel pressure, especially as he came down the stretch and he was trying to rally to Ty Hogan? And he said, no, I didn't. He was not, he was not afraid of the moment. He was just playing the game. He wasn't thinking about all the implications of the victory. He wasn't thinking about Hogan. And the next day when they went out in the playoff, he wasn't afraid of, he wasn't afraid of Hogan. Most players would be afraid of Hogan. Uh, so I, I find that quite remarkable. And obviously it freed him up to play the greatest golf of his life. Well, there's uh, <clears throat> there's not too much doubt about 
about that, is there? Uh, Clates, just on that, on, on the whole zone, it comes through in the book, Fleck was a long way ahead of his time in a lot of ways, wasn't he, Clates? He, Neil talks about him doing yoga. Uh, the yoga, on, yeah. And pacing out yardages long before that, still managing to get around the course in three hours, which was a lovely little snippet of the book that I enjoyed giving some of the, the times the players took to get around the course compared to what we see today. But he was a long way ahead of his time in a lot of ways, it, it would seem, Clates. You know, you, the whole yoga and fitness thing didn't start really until 40 years later. Well, he had the diet, yeah, the yoga. Well, I mean, Gary Player was not long after that. He was the first. Well, Frank Stranahan was playing at that time, so he was the he was lunking weights around it, and, you know, sort of making fun of hotel busboys who couldn't lift his suitcase. But um, yeah, he was one of the first guys to do that, and I'd never realised he was pacing yardages before Nicholas and who's Nicholas go from Gene Andrews or something. So you know, he was. Clearly ahead of most other guys out in the tour. He was going to bed at 9 o'clock, as Neil pointed out, where most of the guys were out at the bar and having a good time. And, um, one of the most fascinating guys I've always found, cause, and you can't find almost... Well, you can, because they wrote the book, The Match. And it was Harvey Ward and his role in the tournament. Can you talk to him a little bit? Well, it was... It, this this tournament takes place about a year before that that famous match. Uh, that you know, Ward and Vittori yeah. played against Nelson and Hogan, and I, I talked to people at the Olympic Club uh, who who knew Harvey Ward, uh, not not a lot, but some. And uh, I worked with the Olympic Club historian on the book, and it was still a time when there were a few really top-notch amateurs who could play shot for shot with the professionals, yeah. and I was told that Harvey Ward was one of the best players in the world at that time. Yeah. And he was living in the Bay Area. He was a member of the San Francisco Golf Club. And when he came in, he was he was a legitimate contender. He'd finished eighth in the Masters. He'd won every important amateur uh, championship in the world except the U.S. amateur, and he would win that later in the summer of 55. So he was a, he was a great player. And as we see him, how as the tournament unfolds, he's right there. He's he's tied at the halfway point. So Harvey Ward uh, was was a terrific player. He really was. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I had the opportunity to talk to Arnold Palmer, and Arnold said Harvey was a was a great player. He said he played against him in in college, and uh, no doubt about it, he could play. And of course, Venturi thought very highly of Harvey Ward as well. Yeah, mm. yeah. It seemed like he was an amazing player. All, all you read about him, you know, everyone who saw him play, it was he was an incredible player. I mean, it was a tragedy what happened to him, really. What did happen to him, Clotes? I was just thinking. Then you're right. You hear Harvey Ward's name bob up when you read stories from the past and these sorts of times. What actually did eventually happen to him, Clotes? Harvey Ward, because he was, as you say, he was. You know, he was kind of the Bobby Jones of his era, wasn't he? He was the amateur, um, you know, that beat all other amateurs and pros. Well, he was kind of sponsored by Eddie Lowry, who was Francis Wiemann's caddy, who became a wealthy Cadillac dealer. And Neil will know better than I exactly what happened, but the upshot was that the USGA took his amateur status away from him. Right. Correct, Neil? Was, was that kind of how it, the, the, that, the that, of what happened? That's correct. And, and I don't really know the details, uh, but, but that is what happened. Mm. And, and it was tragic. He never did turn professional. 
far as I know, he never turned professional. But, um, yep. yeah, there was something in, uh, something in the rules that, uh, caught him and, and, and affected his amateur status. And I think, you know, he was, he was under the wing of Eddie Lowry, so was Ken Venturi, and something went wrong, and, and Harvey lost his amateur status. Hmm. Yeah, it was just a, you know, it was a stupid, petty thing that would never happen in this day. I mean, he was paying his expenses, and looked like everyone else, he was probably getting gold balls for free, and, you know, it's such a hypocritical world, really, but, but, but you hate to see a guy who could have been, you know, one of the great champions of all time, just, I mean... Seemed like he was driven out of the game. I don't know. I don't understand why he just when you've taken him out of the stage. Why I'll just turn pro and go and play. But I don't quite know what happened. But you know, it seemed like one of the great talents was was, was lost. Really. Yeah. It. Um, they were different times, though, weren't they, Neil? As you point out many times in the book, you know, the, there weren't a lot of well, even the top touring professionals maintained club jobs at the time because there wasn't really enough money in the game. Certainly, nothing like what we see today where you could become a wealthy person just from playing golf or very limited opportunities to do that. You're, you're absolutely correct. And even, even top players like Hogan had club jobs. Uh, now, Hogan, uh, he didn't necessarily have to spend a lot of time at the club, and he, he drew a salary, but everyone had club jobs. Uh, there wasn't a lot of money in tournament golf. And if you weren't, I'd say if you weren't in the top ten money winners you were probably struggling just to stay out there, you know, mm. unless you were finding other ways to earn income. Bit like there the, were a lot of money games in between tournaments. Uh, guys, you know, played, played at clubs, and uh, it, was, it was tough. And, and Jack, actually, you know, it, it's accurate to say he was a club pro because he was, and people think, oh, well, he just kind of came out of nowhere. He qualified for the Open, and he beat Hogan. He was a club pro with with some tournament experience, there were a lot of uh, guys in that category who would play what they called the winter circuit, and uh, they they go out to California in January and they play from January until the first of April, when their when golf season opened at their home clubs. So they they would play that part of the tour, but it, it wasn't viable for the, a lot of them to be able to play the full circuit because they just they couldn't manage their courses. They couldn't make enough money. Uh, it was just, it wasn't easy. It was kind of a tough proposition. But they wanted to play tournament golf because they enjoyed the competition and they wanted to test their skills against the best. Yeah, indeed. A bit like the mini tours, mini tour players of today, perhaps, close. It's a bit like rolling the dice. You finish the top five, you've got enough money to go to the next week. If you don't, well, you've got to look around for some more yeah. money elsewhere. Neil, I wanted to ask you, how did... This, of course, is your first book, and I, congratulations. It's an absolutely fabulous first-up effort. I mean, I, I really enjoyed reading it. It was uh, it, it was kind of like being there and, you know, sort of having known the story but not the details. It was fabulous in that way to get all the details. How did it come about? You, of course, have the arm chair golf blog we had you on talking golf probably 18 months ago talking about the armchair golf blog one of the first bloggers if i recall on golf from sort of the mid 90s uh you started doing that how did you come to write the book did you come across jack fleck somewhere because of course his relationship with the press over the years wasn't always fantastic he always felt i think probably quite rightly that he wasn't given his due credit for the win over hogan and it made for a thorny relationship didn't it how did you come to uh, to get his confidence and his trust well, for, it, it came about through the blog, first of all. That's how I ended up making the connection. I started that blog, and 
I didn't really know what I was doing, but I enjoyed blogging and I was experimenting with that with that medium. And I just wrote about golf. I was interested in golf history, and occasionally I might write something about Hogan. And you have a tendency to attract people who share your interests. And I got an email. I, I started corresponding with this fellow who was. Uh, I, I call him a Hogan disciple. He, he really was into Hogan. And he sent me an email one day, and he said, you ought to give Jack Black a call. You probably know who he is. And he's still around. He's in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and he loves to talk about 1955. And I thought, that sounds pretty neat. So I called Jack Black up, and I told him who, he wa- who I was. I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not some famous sports writer, golf journalist or anything, but I, I write about golf, I have a blog, I'm a, I'm a fan, I'm interested in history. And so we started these, having conversations. And as I looked into this more and more, and he told me more and more, I thought, this is such an incredible story. Uh, I, I had always wondered, when I'd read about it, there, there'd be magazine features about Jack Black and Hogan from time to time. And I, I was always curious about it. But how in the world could someone like a Jack Black beat a four-time U.S. Open champ? Hogan's just this 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 hero. He's he's incredible. So the book idea came about, and it's doing a book is a very difficult thing. But I thought you know, I'll try it and I'll see where it goes. I didn't have any grand expectations, but the one thing that sustained me through this long publishing journey is. I knew the story was solid. I knew it was a, a tremendous story. And I just felt like, you know, if, if as someone who's interested in golf and a fan of golf, if, if it's interesting to me, I'm, I surely think it'd be interesting to other people mm. if we could just get it together and out there. How, how long did it take you, Neil? I mean, it's no small project, a book, and particularly a book like this. It is so heavy on minute details, and they're not that easy to find. The only way to do it is to sit and pour over newspaper reports track people down who may have been there, talk to them and get their memories. There's an awful lot of work in getting the sort of detail that you've got in the book. Yeah, I well, it was fun, really. I liked it because I like doing research. Uh, and there's some really great resources in, in the states here. Uh, the USGA is a fabulous resource. The largest, I, I believe it's the largest uh, golf archives in the world and so I, I happen to live about a day's drive from New Jersey and I went there spent spent a couple days doing research, collected materials I I was able to uh, get newspapers from archives through my, my local library, so I got all the papers from San Francisco, I got papers from Iowa, other papers all the golf periodicals that wrote about it there were several players that were still around that I could talk to, and I had Jack. And over time, I just we just talked, and I wanted to develop a relationship with him to where he'd feel comfortable with me and he could trust me. I told him from the beginning, I said, Jack, I, I just want to tell the story. It's a terrific story. I don't have any special agenda. I'm not trying to make a name for myself or anything. I'm not... Not a golf journalist. This is just something I'd really enjoy doing. And so he was still playing golf out on the Champions Tour. They bring the legends out about six times a year. And I could I could drive and see him, and I spent time with him. Sometimes I caddied for him. Uh, I just 
would see him when I can when he wasn't too far away. And I also traveled to where he lived and, and spent time with him. Yeah. So through all of that, I was able to put this together. How long did it take you, Neil? Well, I guess from the first time I called him until publication was five years. Wow. But I wasn't working on that nonstop. There yeah. were there were obstacles on the road to publication. There were you know, there were having to do things like find a literary agent and uh, writing book proposals and pitching publishers. And it's not it's a it's a very uh, difficult thing to get a a book deal from a major publisher these days. So I I definitely got my rejection letters, which is pretty typical for writers and authors, and had to put it aside at times. But I was I was determined to stick with it because again I just I thought this this is a story that's worth telling, and I was surprised that, for instance, all these fellows in the and gals in the media center this week, I, I would have thought that someone would have picked this up and done something with it. It's, you know, being one of the greatest upsets in all of golf and sports. But it hadn't happened, and I, I felt like, well, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. Any thoughts on why it might not have happened, Clates? I mean, Dan Jenkins is probably one of the best-known golf writers, and he's always been, um, in his t- usual way of being quite humorous, he's always been quite scathing about uh, yeah. the event and Olympic Club itself. Do you think there was a resistance among sort of golf writers to tell this story because it wasn't the Hollywood ending? I mean, Hogan didn't get his fifth U.S. Open like everybody had hoped and uh, assumed. Uh, no, I mean, I, I mean, I, Al Barclay also did a book which has just come out called The Upset, which tells the story. And you know, I knew the story because. You know, it's not hard to... I mean, you can't find anything about the 956 Open where Hogan missed a four-foot part in the 71st hole to lose at Oak Hill. I mean, try and find something about that. You can't find anything about it. Or the 957 Open when Dick Mayer won. There's nothing, there is nothing about it. But I always thought there was a lot written about this tournament. I everyone knew the story, but, you know, I guess it, it, it had never really been put into a book. I mean, you could read um, Herbert Warren wins you know, the story of American golf. There's a chapter on it there, and... Uh, and people talk about it, but you know, it, it was just never in a book. Mm. But you know, for me, it was the most interesting time in golf, really. Mm. I mean, Hogan and Snead, and you know, you know, Kurt Sampson's book, The Eternal Summer, is another fantastic book on the summer of 1960 when Jack Fleck was leading the Open. I mean, everyone talks about you know the coming together of Hogan and Palmer and Nicholas at Cherry Hills, but. There was Jack Fleck burning five of the first six holes and leading the Open and kind of finishing third. And so it wasn't like it. And, and it seems to me, Neil, and you can talk to this, that between when he won in 55 and then when he when he had a chance to win again in 1960, he really went out and cashed in on his fame, which was what you needed. I'm to sure. you, know, you know, there was a bloke who'd probably never been secure financially and he, he wins the Open and you know, there's a chance to go and play exhibitions and make a thousand dollars a day, and you know, so he went and did that, and, and it seemed like he lost his game for a while. But clearly, it was a tremendous play to come back five years later and nearly win again. You're right. And, you know, as he said, he might have just said this the other day, or I read it because there's a lot of stories coming out about him. He said, "I had to make some money," and he grew up uh, during the the Great Depression. Never had had a lot of money, and. He and his wife, Lynn, they, they were not poor, but he had this opportunity 
it's not like today's opportunities, but it was a pretty big opportunity after he won the Open. Yet, it was estimated that off-course off income would be roughly $60,000. Mm. He, he had the opportunity to sign endorsement deals and, and, and such and do exhibitions, as you said. So he wanted he wanted to do that, and then he was he was feeded a lot. He was on the ban- banquet circuit, I guess you'd say, and it really didn't agree with him and his style. Uh, eating late dinners, and things like that. He it got him off track, and as we see even today, when when you see somebody wins the Open, uh, it's a tremendous achievement. But it also can throw them off a little bit for a while afterwards. And Jack's game uh, left him. He wasn't able to do the same things that got him to that point. But he did He did rebound in the late 50s, started focusing again on his golf and his tournament play, uh, got better. And I really, the book goes into this, as you guys know, but 1960 might have been his, his best season. It's arguably his best season of golf, even though he didn't. He only had one win. He played very well, and he could have easily won probably three tournaments, including the U.S. Open. Yep. At this time, he didn't have that feeling in his hand, and in his hands, and his, and he had some trouble closing some tournaments out. Not the first player that that's happened to. Bit of a sign of the times. Byron Nelson was somewhat the same, wasn't he, Clays? He 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 played for the money, and once he had enough money for his ranch, he quit. <laughs> that's what players did did in those times. Well, they were all playing for the money, but um, yeah, he just he was done. He was out there. Yep, that was uh, wasn't that uncommon. I, I touched on it earlier, Neil. I'm just uh, I'm fascinated with some of the details in this book, and it, it it's a bit of a genre. It seems to me this book. You mentioned the match, the book about the match between uh, I think it was Nelson Hogan and Warden Venturi, who were both amateurs. Took place at Cypress Point. Fa- fabulous story. The book about Wamet, which came out a couple of years ago, and his journey to that amazing U.S. Open victory. And the key to them all are these fabulous details that the authors managed to gather. The stuff that you don't get in the overview of the, you know, the the story that was written on the day when it happened about the results of the tournaments and stuff. I'm going to throw you a couple of details. You can tell me where you got these from, Neil, that I found really interesting. The purse for the US Open in 1955 was increased after day two because the gate takings had exceeded what they expected. The the, the winner's uh, share went from, I think, 5000 to $6,000. This is an extraordinary thing to happen, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it was, and I that was in the newspaper. I'm pretty sure that that was in, I, I'm going to say, the San Francisco Chronicle. I, I'm not positive about that. I'd have to go back and check it. But back then, the newspapers, they really, that's where people got their news, mm. and and I suppose the radio, too. And it was amazing to me when I when I pulled the newspapers. I, I actually went. I spent probably three or four days in the library, going through microfiche, which I wouldn't do today because you can search things online a lot more easily. But when I researched this book, there was still microfiche, and I put those big holes on a machine, and I would uh, fool through those things. And there there was just so much coverage and a lot of detail that was a, that enabled me to try to bring it back yeah. the way it happened as much as possible. There's some good things about the internet, but Clayton's one of the things we've lost with the internet, isn't it? Uh, is the wonderful long piece about 
golf tournaments. I found a book one one time many years ago at a house I stayed at in Rye down on the Mornington Peninsula, and it was just a collection of um, golf tournament reviews, some of the great tournaments, the Masters and that yeah. sort of thing. And they were, you know, they were three and four and 5,000 words. They're almost mini books in themselves, but they were gripping to read because they were full of this sort of stuff. You don't get that on the web anymore, do you? No, you don't. It's got to be short and quick. And, yeah. But, you know, I remember Ben Wright, right? He was at Hazeltine when Tony Jackman went writing for Golf World magazine in Britain. And he wrote, you know, he was day for day, hole for hole, shot for shot with, you know, Jackman's win there. I mean, I've, but that was the year I started playing golf, and I can remember reading that. It was amazing. It was pages and pages of fascinating stuff about Dave Hill and Tony Jackman beating him and that famous open there. So, yeah, you don't get that now. You just never read that sort of and stuff. K- kids wouldn't believe you if you told them, Neil, but there's something more compelling than about that than even watching the tournament on TV, isn't there? That that after the event, really hearing about exactly what unfolded as it unfolded, I find it more compelling necessarily than just television. Neil, we still got yeah, you. Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. Did yeah, you no, that, that one to me. Yeah, no, it was just yeah. Uh, uh, you must have found that going through uh, all the papers. You know that you almost get a better feel for what unfolded at the tournaments than if you'd watched them on television, where it's gone. You see it, and it's gone. Yeah, and and one of the challenges I felt was, yeah, I've read a lot of golf books myself, and there there's a little bit of golf literature out there where they focus on. Uh, maybe one or two big tournaments, but even some of Mark Frost's book, uh, the match is an example of a one match, and but he does a lot of backstory in between the match, you know, the during the match to tell you who these characters are. I wasn't really sure how I was going to do this when I sat down to write it. I had an outline, I knew the story, I had good research, but I wondered how am I going to write about this tournament and sustain the narrative. But I, I, I had a lot of good material, and uh, what I did is, and I had I had things like the pairing sheets, and even I even had the times when they they went off. Uh, I got, and I just spread it all out in front of me, and I pretended like I was watching the tournament mm-hmm. and wrote it down, and and tried to use every little scrap of information. I knew it couldn't be just golf, 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 but I wanted to tell people about the venue and, you know, what hot dogs cost time. And uh, they were they were starting to do things like use walkie-talkies to transmit scores. And it was the second open where they put up gallery ropes. Yeah. I really wanted to try to paint a picture of what it was like there as much as possible. And I, I had enough information that I could... You know, make an attempt to do that. Yeah, uh, the, one of the details I really loved, and I don't know where you got this from, but the Western Union mi- wired more words on this tournament than they ever had for any previous golf tournament. There was more written about it at the time than any golf tournament prior to it. It's extra. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes, and that that was another thing that was in the newspaper. Uh, it, there were so many stories leading up to the tournament, during the tournament, and even after the tournament in the newspaper every day. Uh, and, and and in some cases, I had multiple accounts. I'd have the New York Times, I'd have the San Francisco Chronicle, I might have an Iowa newspaper. And there would be details about certain players and uh, other details about other players or the same player that wasn't in another article. And I would just dig for all those scraps to recreate this tournament and try to 
help everyone understand what was going on. Yeah. The great tragedy, of course, Neil, is that uh, we lost Ben Hogan some years ago, so you would never have had the chance to talk to him about it. But so much has been written about Hogan and, and some of the details about him, and I know that probably not much of it was fresh, but just what he had to go through to be able to play tournament golf after that horrific accident. Two-hour two preparation of bathing in warm water with Epsom salts and then having to bandage his legs from sort of, you know, hip to ankle uh, to allow him to walk. Those 36-hole final days must have been a killer and you know the, the the notion of going an extra 18 holes must have just well not terrified him but you wouldn't have looked forward to it would he <laughs> no he wouldn't have he wasn't a big fan of playoffs and I, I i think it was i don't think it just had to do with his legs i think it was the way he approached tournament golf i think his approach was i'm going to play my best golf for 72 holes i'm going to have a plan laid for how i'm going to approach this tournament and he was quite a technician. You know, he would map out a strategy. He would figure out the score he wanted to shoot. And he'd go out, and, and I think he figured that if he could put that score on the board, there was a pretty good chance that he could win. And a playoff to him was probably almost sort of anticlimactic. Mm. He, he, wanted to, he, wanted, he wanted it to be over at the end of 72 holes. Uh, you know, even in the book, he's, he's in the locker room, and... I think I think it's in there, in there about he wanted he wanted Fleck to either win it outright or or lose it. But he, the last thing he wanted was a tie, so they had to go another eighteen holes. Yeah, another eighteen, another eighteen holes. And but, but of course, he was quite a, quite a champion. He he, he played uh, a, a great, except for that last hole where he he was a bit unfortunate. He played a, a great eighteen hole playoff round. Well, absolutely. He came to the 18th tee, didn't he? One shot behind, and you know his foot slipped on a on the tee shot, and he, he pulled it into the junk, and took him two to get out of there, and he ended up making six. I mean, uh, one can only imagine what the the atmosphere must have been like standing around that 18th hole in the playoff, Mike, because the expectation obviously would be that you know Hogan would make the birdie he needed, because that's what champions do. We've seen Woods do it, and you mentioned the Rocco Mediate thing from 2008, that incredible putt that Tiger sunk. To, uh, to even it all up so they had to go to the playoff. The atmosphere must have just been electric. That would have been such a disappointment and a letdown, I'd imagine, Clates. Yeah, just that one shot and he was done. Yep. Um, Neil, uh, you, there was that famous quote of Gene Littler's when someone came up and said, you know, Jack, you need two birdies to tie. And Littler said, well, you, you know, you might have to get a couple of pounds as well. Um, did you get a sense that Littler was rooting for Hogan to win or was it... Or was he on flex side, or was he ambivalent to who won, or did, did you really yeah. ask how, how he felt about Fleck winning and playing with him? Or you know what I'd like? I'd like you to see if you could find that out for me because <laughs> I I couldn't get anything. Gene's a great guy. He couldn't remember a thing. He he is just one of those individuals who had no recall of that tournament wow. and. I think that's, uh, I don't think it's just a veteran. I just think that's Gene. He, he's, he's still healthy. He still plays golf. I watched him play out on the legend circuit, but I, I probably, I talked to him maybe three times over the course yeah. of a few years. I'd see him out there and he just didn't remember anything. I'd say, Gene, you played with, with Jack Fleck the last two rounds of the Olympic when he, when he tied Hogan. Uh, what do you remember about that? And 
say, he, he tried to tell me something, but I could tell he, he, did, he didn't have any recall at all. So I didn't get anything from Gene. I mean, that's amazing. I, I mean, I know John Huggan, who sometimes comes on the show, he spoke to Guy Hunt, who played with Jack Nicholas in the last round of the 72 Open at Muirfield when Torino won, and Nicholas was going for the Grand Slam, and he went to talk to Guy Hunt about what happened that day. He said he didn't remember anything. <laughs> he said he couldn't tell me anything. I mean, he was, you know, someone, you know, one of the, one of the, along with this day, really, you know, the 72 Open at Muirfield, one of the great days in golf, and here was this guy playing with Jack Nicholson. He, he, he couldn't remember anything about it. I asked, well, what do you, what do you mean? I mean, surely you remembered every single shot. And he said nothing. Didn't, didn't, couldn't tell me a thing. Wow. So the little thing yeah, is, and I, that also amazes me that someone could play 36 holes in such a famous open and have no recall of what happened. I mean, it's just bizarre to me, but anyway. Mm, it is. Uh, it's extraordinary. Well, and, I, and Gene's a, Gene's a great guy, too. And I, I don't want it to come across as, no. as derogatory toward him at all. I, you know, it's interesting. As I've talked to some of these gentlemen uh, who played long ago, their recall can be amazing. They can recall the tournaments, the shots they hit over 50 years ago. I think a lot of them, what, what they remember is when they played well and maybe won. Uh, some don't remember anything. I, I think Gene would have a hard time. He, he won. He's a Hall of Famer, and he won 30 tournaments. He won at least one major. I know he won. I think he won the 61 U.S. Open. And he just he just didn't know. He, did, he didn't remember. And I ran into that with others, too. But I was hoping. I thought, what a great opportunity. He was playing with Jack. Fortunately, Jack. there were others that remembered an awful lot. Yeah. Did you get any sense from the players who were there that you, you spoke to, Neil, about whether anybody was, you know, who was pulling for who? I mean... Um, you can't help it, can you? When there's when there's two people are going to face off, you have to pick one that you're uh, that you're cheering for, don't you? Did you get any sense from the players? There was obviously an expectation that Hogan would win the playoff, but uh, did you get the sense from any of the players that some of them were hoping that Fleck would do it? Well, certainly Jack's friends were were rooting for him, and some of the other players they they never they, they never really said that they were pulling for one player. I, I think that it's just the sentiment that was Hogan would win. Mm. Uh, was, he'd won four of the last six U.S. Open he played in. Uh, he was he knew how to win those those big mm. tournaments, especially the U.S. Open. Tiger 2000. So, uh, you know, Arnold Palmer told Arnold Palmer was a, a rookie on tour that year, and he told me, I didn't think he'd remember much about Jack Black, at least at that stage. They played a lot of golf together later, but he told me he did, and he said, you know, we knew Jack could play, but no one really thought he was an open contender, and, and why would they? He, he hadn't won. He barely cracked the top ten, hmm. and it was only the third U.S. Open he'd ever played in. Extraordinary story. Some par- there are parallels between Fleck and Hogan, aren't there? I mean, there's the famous story of Hogan, you know, having... It, w- it was his last chance, the first US Open he won, and the wheels got stolen off his car in the motel car park, and he sort of said to his wife, well, this is it. If we don't do anything decent here, we're giving it up. We'll go back to Texas, and I'll get a club job. Jack Fleck was on a similar sort of a thing, wasn't he? He'd made an, a deal with his wife. He had two years to kind of prove himself as a tournament player. She would look after the two shops of the two golf courses that he was the pro at back in Iowa, and if it didn't work out, that was going to be his lot. He was going to have to give up 
um, pursuing tournament golf. The parallels, the poor, the poor background as children, and sort of teaching themselves how to play and digging it out of the dirt. And there was a real sort of thing, isn't? Weren't there with um, between the two of them? There's a lot of similarities in their backstories, and perhaps that explains why Hogan wasn't known as a great people person, wasn't he? But he did seem to take a shine to Jack Fleck for some reason. Yeah, I don't know that Jack has ever really figured it out, but I think he he did get this sense that maybe Hogan knew he grew up poor, that Jack had built his game on his own from the ground up, worked really hard, and I think I think Hogan did some things. We we found out about if if Fleck would have never won the U.S. Open, maybe some of these things that Hogan. I might not have known about, but I think Hogan did some things to help some people out. He wasn't the kind of person to publicize it. Mm. So, yeah, Jack, Jack did, he was trying to make it on tour, and he had, he was going to give it two seasons, and then if, if it didn't work out, he was just going to be a club pro back in Iowa and maybe play a few regional tournaments from time to time. Mm. No, no, sort but he of... told his way. Sorry, get. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rod. No, I was going to say to Clates, that's that's uh, just the sort of pressure you need on top of the the rigors of tournament golf to put that on yourself as well, isn't it? He really had everything to play for, didn't he? He did. Yeah, it was a different time. Um, I guess you know, the the tragedy. Well, the great sadness of it was his wife's suicide. Did he talk to you much about that? We didn't talk. That was really a sensitive subject. Yeah. And we didn't we didn't spend a lot of time on that. No, I, I, I knew about it, and occasionally he'd bring it up. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot, there's definitely a lot of pain there. Mm. And I had to decide what I was going to say about it, if anything, in the book. Yeah. And I decided not to go into detail on that. Uh, Jack, Jack gave me a lot of access. Uh, we, we had a good relationship with a trusting relationship, and in all this, in everything I looked at, I'd never seen anything uh, published that went into detail about that. Mm. It doesn't and really so add, add to the story, I, does it? Of the the golf. I felt like I didn't want to put that in the book. Mm. I didn't want to be the person to go into that more deeply. Now, and, and I think. I think another factor with that is that Jack is still, he's still alive. Yeah. I think if he weren't alive, uh, there might be some other considerations with going into that a little bit more. But for me, I just didn't feel like it was the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, what about now, Neil? I, I, I keep seeing in the last three days it's been fabulous. Jack is, of course, at Olympic Club this year. I saw a fabulous photo on Twitter that you know, talk about how the world's changed. Zach Johnson took, had his photo taken with uh, with Jack Fleck, the two Iowans who've won a major championship. I'm pretty sure there's only two people from Iowa who've won major championships, but he's at the venue this week, as are you. Do you get the sense that maybe... It seems to me that perhaps Jack is now getting the credit he was probably due back at the time, and for all those reasons we've discussed that he never really got it, and that maybe this is a lovely... I mean, he's 90 years old now, you know, he's still a healthy in, in individual, but 90 years old. A nice swan song. Is it nice for this week to happen with the book coming out, him going back to the club, everybody talking about it? I've seen him interviewed by the USGA. Most of the writers have tracked him down to have a word to him about 1955. Have you Have you spoken to him this week? It must be a nice... 
a nice way to, to, to close off this circle of this amazing event in his life. It's, it's everything you say, Rod, everything. I had dinner with him when I got into town Sunday night. Uh, we were together yesterday. He's getting a lot of attention, and there's been, there's been a lot of press coverage. And there, I think they're really reassessing his victory. Mm. Uh, not calling it a fluke, not calling it lucky, not calling it just Hogan's loss. And, you know, I always felt like there were there are different ways of looking at this. You know, there are different storylines. And uh, I think now people are seeing how well he played and what achievement it, it was. And people like an underdog, a lot, like an underdog story. You know, plus Ben Hogan has been gone now 15 years. Mm. And I think he casts a long shadow. Uh, last time we played here, 1998, Hogan had been gone one year. Mm. And we've seen in the last 15 or so years two major Hogan biographies come out. Maybe those books and those stories need to come out and be told first. Mm. But yes, Jack's, Jack's getting his due. Uh, I might add, today, we stood on the 18th green. We stopped well, I didn't really have to stop play during the practice round, but there were people up in the stands. Golf Channel was down there, uh, several other people, the USGA, and they recreated that seven-foot putt that he sunk to Ty Hogan. And he, he stood on the green as a, uh, with the same putter in his hand, wow. and he hit that putt again. Wow. Uh, on the first time, on the first try, he missed it a little bit left, but on the next two tries, he put it in. Wow. It's extraordinary. And what an amazing week, Mike Clayton. The youngest competitor ever in U.S. Open history will tee it up, a 14-year-old kid called Andy Zhang. And there right on the site is uh, is Jack Fleck, 90 years old, won the event 57 years ago at this venue. It's an, it's an, it's an amazing sport, golf, isn't it? That just that encapsulates it nicely, doesn't it? Yeah, I bet you have to give the kid a history lesson. I'm sure he's never heard of it. No, that's right. But, you know, it's... Um it's interesting how the players of today, where they know much about the history or read much about it, or you know, it would be interesting to me how many guys playing this week would would read this book and be interested in it. And I know some would, but I suspect many probably wouldn't, which is sad. Because when golf's got there's so much great stuff written about golf, there are so many fantastic books that tell its story so well. And Yep. Yeah, I, mean, I find it fascinating to read this stuff. I love it. It's yeah. great. There's, there's three sports where the writing stands out, I've always thought, Clates, and they're, funnily enough, boxing, which I'm not a fan of, but great writing about boxing, cricket, mm-hmm. which tells wonderful stories, yeah. and golf, um, yeah. too long for me, which, which lead to, to sort of fabulous, uh, fabulous writing. Neil, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and uh, I might get Clates' thoughts on this as well. I doubt this has ever happened to him. This extraordinary story that Jack released sort of 30 years after his open victory he sort of let it slip in a television interview with uh, with Peter Kessler that he'd heard this voice in the bathroom on the that final day before they played I think it was before they played the the final two rounds on the the Saturday not so much the playoff voice coming out of the mirror and telling him twice Jack you're going to win the open um this is quite right. This sort of thing's happened before. I remember Ben Crenshaw, when he won the Masters, thought he'd seen Billy Joe Patton standing somewhere, and Billy Joe was nowhere near the golf course. I'm pretty sure Johnny Miller, before he won the, the US Open with that remarkable final round 63, there was a, a story about some crazy, uh, you know, future-looking lady who told him, you know, that uh, that something was going to happen. He was going to win the Open. You got this one with Jack Fleck. What was your take on what that might have been about? That, that's a very odd snippet, isn't it, about this whole story? 
It is. And people have a different, they have different views on, on spiritual matters, but I see it as a spiritual experience that he had. Mm. And I've seen, you know, I talked to him about that somewhat in depth because I wanted just to be able to report it. I wanted to write about what happened that morning in his motel. I wanted to understand it. I wanted to ask him some specific questions about it to make sure, you know, did you, Jack, was it an audible voice that you heard twice or was it something you heard in your mind? No, I heard it. It just came out of the mirror and I heard it. And he's been very consistent about how he's told that story. Uh, he kept it to himself for for a number of years. And I, you know, if you, if you talk to him, of course, he was the only one there, and it was a very personal uh, situation. Okay. But he, he is believable to me as far as how he could base that and uh, what happened with it. Yeah. He, now, he, he, yeah, he did tell me that it didn't really... He didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it afterwards. He just felt like he needed to get up to the golf course and go about his business. He wasn't... He wasn't out there thinking, well, I've got this in the bag now because of the voice. He, he went out and took care of business and, and played his game. Yeah, but a, it, it definitely made quite an impression on him. Yeah. It's a bizarre detail. Clates, has it ever happened to you? Has the Mirror ever spoken to you and told you that you're going to win a tournament? No, the mirror, no, no, it never happened. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you look back and you can, you know, you kind of see things that the, the state of mind you're in. And I mean, Johnny Miller was on the, he was on the practice tee at, um, Oakmont, and he said, I heard this voice saying, open your stance up, open your stance up. And That's right, yeah. He, he pulled his left foot back and opened his stance up and shot 63. And, you know, I mean, I mean, we all talk to ourselves at times. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, you know, it's an amazing story. It's always been a fascinating story, the Jack Fleck Hogan story. And, you know, how, how Sam Snead was involved in it. I mean, you know, how that, you know, the accusations that the USA didn't like him and Bobby Jones thought he was crude and they, they kind of, Change the draw, so you know it never favoured him, and so it was. You know, that's another fascinating sidelight to this whole thing was that you know the tragedy of the Open really. You know, Hogan couldn't win five, and you know Palmer only won one when he was had a chance to win four or five in that period in the sixties, and Sam Snead never won one. You know, the great tragedy of golf almost that there was this guy who was arguably the most talented player ever to play who could never win the US Open. So it's the the group has got. There are so many great stories around how it's unfolded over the years and the history of it, and the fact that Jack Fleck can win it out and Sam State can't. You know, that's a, that's the staggering part of the tournament, really. Yeah, it's uh, it is a it's a it's one of golf's most most uh, extraordinary stories and moments. It's fabulous to see it in a book. I'm sure you learned something, Clates. You probably have forgotten more about golf history than I could learn if I started studying now, but I'm sure you took things out of it that you didn't know before. I know you enjoyed the book. Yeah, well, they were just, you know, I really read all those guys, Porky Oliver ringing out, because Porky Oliver, Neil, I think, hated Hogan. You know, he was the guy who really disliked Hogan the most, and he rang Fleck up and said, you know, kick his ass. <laughs> right. and he, and he was, yeah, so, 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 so there are things through all the time. You, you know, you find out more and more about you know, Julius Boros and you know, all, those, all those amazing guys who, when I was staying to play golf, they were kind of the, the, the stars on the tour, really. So it's, 
always fun to find out more about them. Yep, absolutely. You, you, you know, and I think the question is, will kids in 50 years be fascinated by what's happening now? I'm not sure that the players today are that interesting. Will, I mean, will they you get... Know, will, think, you know, will I don't they, know. Well, they get the access, though, Clades. And, Neil, you could probably speak to this as well because you write about golf in the modern era as well. It's so much more micromanagement from the player's perspective. I mean, you don't get access to the likes of Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods. They do the press conferences, but they're all well-trained responses. They're public performers, aren't they? The players back in that day, it was a very different thing, wasn't it? The reporters just walked up to them after and in the scoring centre. They'd go out to the bar at night and have drinks with them and dinner and they became friends. It was a completely different world and you get insights into the players from that era you couldn't hope to get today. That's true, yeah. And and they didn't... Rarely did the coverage stray from the, the golf course, too. Mm. It, just, it just didn't really happen. Uh, there wasn't as much money. I think that contributed a lot to mm. fact so much different. Yeah. It was more like a traveling circus in those days. And, and as you know from reading the book, they they traveled together. They had to sort of stretch their expense money as best they could. Uh, it and and they because they traveled together and spent a lot of time together. Where whether it was hanging out after tournaments or playing cards or playing practice rounds. They were friendly. They they liked a lot of the pros got along pretty well. They they tried to beat each other's brains out, but they were friendly. They weren't they didn't have their little entourages and agents and so forth. Uh it, it was just a whole different time and it was a it was a different game. The players are sort of locked away these days, aren't they? And they're, each player is in their own little bubble, and you know they may they may from time to time share a jet, Neil, but it's <laughs> it's more convenience than any sort of require. They can all afford their own jet if required to get from one stop to the next. That's uh, it's uh, certainly different. It was Neil. I'm, we must wrap it up there. I could talk to you for hours about this fabulous book. Congratulations, as I said. I, I think you've added something to the annals of golf history. Really, really enjoyed reading it, and uh, can see and appreciate the effort and work that's gone into putting it together. And uh, appreciate you taking some time today on what is going to be no doubt a very busy week for you. I think you've got some book signings, and you're selling the book in the merchandise tent there at the U.S. Open. So you'll be flat out, no doubt, for the next week. Yeah, it's been pretty busy, but I've really been enjoying it, and I appreciate the opportunity to being being able to talk to both of you. So, uh, thank you, thank you for reading the book and and having this chat with me. I really appreciate it. No, not at all. It's uh, it's what we like doing, and uh, and glad you could take the time. And Clates, as always, uh, fabulous to get your insights and thoughts. And uh, I know you enjoyed the book as well, and we might yeah, have a chat right. about the Al Barkow one. But thanks for taking some time today, mate. Thanks, mate. Enjoyed it. Yep. And that wraps up the Talk and Golf State of the Game joint effort for today. Looking forward to doing it all again next week when we'll have a new US Open champ. Clates, maybe Anthony Summers can roll Tiger Woods in a playoff and overshadow the Fleck v. Hogan. That'd be nice, uh, wouldn't it? Yeah, Tiger would be best Tiger Woods. <laughs> it won't be anywhere near the upset if he does, but uh, how is Jeff? Is he uh, Does he like the golf course there, Mike? You would have spoken to him, I'm sure. Yeah, he was up in Bandon last week. He played, yeah. he played the courses up there, so... Good preparation for the British Open, I suspect. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, Jeff loves the Open. He, you know, he, he always enjoys it. He, he, he loves, especially the West Coast Open. So. I'm sure he'll play okay. Yeah, let's uh, let's hope so. Fingers crossed for him and all the other Australians from our aspect. Neil, thank you for taking taking some time, and uh, we'll uh, we'll be back again to do it all again next week. State of the game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information.
for more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.